Take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 11. We'll be in 11 and 12. The Word of God, beginning in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again, saying, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of delium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills, or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all these people alone. The burden's too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I might not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men, the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting. And let them take their stand there with you, and I will come down and talk with you there. I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or 
two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am numbered, 600,000 on foot. You've said I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month? Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out, told the people the words of the Lord. He gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud, spoke to him, and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. The Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered but had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up And it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. The people rose all that day and all that night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp while the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed. The anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck down people, the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving From Kilbroth, Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us hearts that understand and believe, because your spirit is at work. For Christ's sake, amen. Periodically, I do like to let you in on a preacher's secrets. 
the tricks of the trade, what it's like to be on this side of the pulpit. I often am on that side as well, but you're very rarely up here. There's one tremendous trick that I think is probably pertinent for today. Uh, Don't answer this out loud, but who is the easiest person for me to describe in the room? You ever thought about this? This is universally true, probably of every preacher ever. Who's the easiest person for me to describe to you? It's most likely the person sitting next to you. Because when we have a sermon about complaining, none of you will think that I'm talking to you. And you will almost certainly think that I'm talking to the person sitting next to you. You'll be sitting there going, oh man, they really need to hear that. Some of you will be giving elbows. Parents will be kind of popping the back of children's heads to get them to pay attention. The trick of the trade for preachers is that it's easy for me to stand up here and to describe your neighbor to you. I can describe your spouse to you. I can describe your children to you. I can describe if you have a nemesis, if you even have that anymore. I don't know if that exists in 22, your arch enemy. I can describe that coworker who's driving you crazy, that person from church that you want to wring their neck hardest thing is to describe yourself. I can describe anybody to you but yourself. And you know the real reason for that, honestly, isn't it? It's because we don't like to admit the things that we struggle with. We don't like to admit that we're these people. And I mean, we know the Bible talks all the time about complainers, and we really love to complain about the complainers. All those other people, the bad people out there, the ones who do the bad things. Surely, Michael's going to talk about them. He's never going to talk about me. Reminded me of a quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He said, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions, but not hate the bad man. Or as they would say, hate the sin, but not the sinner. I used to think this is a silly, straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did, but not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all of my life, namely myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, and we might put here, or complaining, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. Friends, the challenge with any sermon on complaining is that it's very difficult to figure out how to get it to talk to you not to talk about the people that you live with, not to talk about the people that you interact with, not to talk about the people that drive you crazy, but to talk about you. And part of that is because Lewis has identified us all correctly, that we excel, we are superheroes of turning a blind eye to our own faults. 
Right? We might complain all the time. Some of us might even be willing to concede that I, I struggle with complaining. I'm not a complainer, but I struggle with complaining. And the other person, man, they complain twice. They're a complainer, right? Twice is a pattern. That's enough. That's all it takes. How comfortable we are defining them by their sin, defining them by their failures, defining them by their negativity, defining them by all of the things they struggle with. But man, I come out looking good, don't I? That line from Lewis, however much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed or complaining, I went on loving myself. You see, that's actually what we're going to get at the root of chapter 11 and then even 12. I'm preaching both today if I have enough time. That the people of Israel are seriously on the struggle bus because they've fallen in love with themselves. And that's a problem because of uh, not just the selfishness of it, not just the self-centeredness of it, but especially for where they are in time and space and human history. The Lord has taken this people and He's brought them out of Egypt and He's brought them out of Egypt with probably the most spectacular cluster of miracles that we've ever seen until King Jesus shows back up. I mean, the things that they've witnessed, the things that they've felt, the inconveniences that they've heard of in the land, the the greatest army on earth is wiped out in a moment when the sea eats it. They were taken from these plagues, taken from the Red Sea. They were taken to a mountain where the Lord himself dwelt, and it was so holy that even the creatures weren't allowed to go onto the mountain, the cows, because you would have to kill them because it's too holy because God is there. And for over a year, they meet with their God. He tells them more and more and more and more about who He is and how He interacts with them, how He loves them, how He cares for them, how they are to behave in relationship to Him, what their dynamic is going to be between their relationship, how they as His creatures would interact with Him, their Creator how he would deal with their sin. He's been revealing to them himself and his plan of salvation for them day after day after day. He's been teaching them how to be his people. You see, that's the significant part of what's taking place here is now we're not talking about a a people that have very little knowledge about who God is. We're not talking about a people that don't even know his name anymore. We're talking about a people that he's been living with, that he's been talking to, that he's been giving his law to, that he's even had them build a house for him, that he dwells in their midst. This is not a people that their God is far off. This is a people whose God lives with them. It's actually... That perfect setup for us, again, is why we have to kind of be honest about considering our own complaining. We're not talking about a people who has a God that's far, far away. We have a people who's God who's right there with them. 
All of the promises fulfilled in Jesus. He's with us. We know him. We know this God. That's why our complaining is such an issue. Chapter 10, they finally leave Sinai. The Lord takes them away. He's preparing them to go into the promised land. We know that's going to go poorly for Israel in just a few uh, bits here, uh, a couple of chapters. But they leave. And traveling with them is an ordeal because, one, it's two and a half million people, give or take a bit. But even as they travel, they travel in this extremely organized company in this very specific shape with God traveling in the middle of them. He rests in the middle of them. He stays among them. He tabernacles with his people. They begin the journey with their God going with them. And you get to chapter 11. And the people complained. Now, there's a note here. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord. And this is significant because, again, God is with them. It's not like they're complaining to a God who has left them. They're complaining to a God who's there. They're complaining to a God who hears They're complaining to the God who is beside them, who is before them, who is after them, who is with them. Now, verses 1 through 3 introduce this problem of complaining, and it's given really in the generic. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord uh, about their misfortunes. Now, this is a bit of a comedic line. They really have no misfortunes. The Lord's brought them out of Egypt. That's pretty spectacular. He's given them miraculous food to eat so they never have to starve. He's made their traveling miraculously good, and then their feet are, you know, sandals and everything are traveling well. They've just been uh, camped out on the side of a mountain. He's been miraculously providing for them. Every kind of enemy they've had, he's killed through miraculous fashion, and he's provided everything for them every step of the way. Now, it might not be the cushiest lifestyle. I mean, they're not living our life right now. I mean, they don't have a bed as comfortable as ours at home. They don't have this, you know, comfy pillows that we have. Uh, They're walking, you know. They're not traveling Toyota or something. But as far as their misfortunes go, they really don't have any. I mean, the Lord has basically taken care of every single misfortune along the way. And the interesting thing is they still start in on it grumbling about his provision for them, grumbling about the misfortunes that they have, and the Lord hears it, and he's angry. Now, again, this one receives a different level of response. We get to see this throughout the rest of the chapter, that God's anger here burns very brightly. Because this is not, again, a people who do not know him. This is a people that have been living with him for a year. This is a people that he's residing in their midst. Using kind of maybe a ridiculous illustration, this is they're not dating. They're not even really newlyweds anymore. They've, they've established a life together of God and his people, and now they begin to cry out against how he's taking care of them. That's why we see his response is so strong. The general grumbling produces a general fire. 
In the outlying parts of the camp, the grammar here is not super clear as to if it's burning tents or if it's burning people. We know that it starts on the outside. We know that it's burning rapidly enough to be a problem, but also slowly enough that they could get the word to Moses and Moses would intercede. He prays and the Lord calms down the fire. And I'll be honest, that's where a lot of times our kind of conversation at the complaint level kind of rests. It rests in that general, generic idea of complaining because honestly, if we talk about complaining in the generalities, I can kind of find loopholes to get myself out of it. Right? If we, if we talk about complaints really at the, the you know, 100,000 foot view, I can find loopholes that, you know, it was a prayer request. I wasn't grumbling. I'm just sharing information. I'm not grumbling. I mean, the Psalms do this. No, they don't. We can find ways to work around. The interesting thing here is actually the Lord in his infinite wisdom provides very clear, specific illustrations that then follow. First, it introduces the idea and God's people in, in anger their God when they complain against his providence against his provision. But then it works into the specifics in verses four and following. From the generality into the specifics, look at how they complain against specifically what he's given. Now the rabble, there's a faction inside of Israel. There's a group of no goods, 'er ne'er-do-wells, use an old term, They're raising a ruckus amongst the people of Israel, and uh, they have a a very strong craving. Some of you foodies might understand some of this. They've been eating the same thing roughly for a year. That might get a bit tedious. Granted, it's one of the most spectacular foods ever. The way that it's presented here is that it's a sweet kind of manna. So what's it? We don't know exactly, but it's sweet. But it takes on the flavor of whatever you want it to cook. So if you cook it and make pancakes, it makes cakes baked with oil. It tastes like pancakes. It's awesome. That's pretty cool, right? The Lord provides food for you for a year, and the easiest way to cook it is pancakes. I'll take that. They're, They're worse things. But what do they do? They begin to bemoan against what God has done and complain about how miserable they are. I love just kind of the the melodrama of verses 4 and 5 and 6. You have to read it in a whiny tone, right? Oh, that we had meat to eat. I'm tired of pancakes. Do you remember the fish? Oh, the fish, it was so good. The cucumbers, the melons, the onions. Oh, the onions and the garlic. Now our strength is dried up. We have nothing to eat except manna every day and as much as we can possibly eat. I mean, never mind the fact that Egypt literally had them enslaved. But forget that part. And they actually were torturing them with the amount of work that they had to do and then increasingly making it difficult so that they didn't. Never mind the fact that they were increasingly persecuting the people of God for worshiping the living and true God. Never mind the fact that Egypt is the portrait of evil. And they're saying, man, I would trade, I would sell my soul to the devil for some garlic. I mean, garlic's good, don't get me wrong. 
But come on now. And I love how it, it puts it in such clear, graphic, and ridiculous illustration for us. That what you have here is a people that has been freed from slavery that is grumbling over cantaloupe. And how stupid is that? Freed from the bondage of being ruled by an outside terrible ruler and to throw a tantrum over cucumber and onion. But you see, what's happening here is a contrast between they should be contemplating God's provision, God's goodness, the things that he's done to take care of them. Instead, the me monster has gotten them. They are being ruled by a different tyrant. They've, they've exchanged Pharaoh for the me monster, and the me monster is governing their belly, is governing their appetites, it's governing their hearts, and now they are consumed with me. Again, I, I just love the, the verbiage. They're, they're weeping. Like God's not providing for them. They're weeping. Everyone's weeping at the door of their own tents because God's not providing what they want. I mean, granted, he's provided miracle food that no matter how much you gather, it's exactly what you need to eat. Granted, he's provided a miracle food that's in some fashion healthy enough that you can eat it uh, roughly 21 meals a week and be just fine medically. He's provided a miracle food that how you cook it, there's lots of different ways and tastes good each way. But no. And you see, really, what's happening is the heart of a complaining spirit. Rather than, than contemplating, rather than meditating, rather than stewing on the mercies of God, It's a heart that's stewing on what I don't have. I don't have the peace I want. I don't don't have the patience I want. I I have too many aggravating people in my life. I have too many things that uh, provide anxiety for me. I have have too many problems that I just need to get rid of, and it's, it's just not fair that God's giving them to me. I just want garlic. You see, the interesting thing is as God has been interacting with them on this mountain, he's been teaching them who he is. And when they do go to complain, they complain about who they are. Rather than being captivated by who he is, they've been captivated by who they are. Verses four through nine lay out their complaint. It's a complaint against his provision. I don't like the way that you've provided for me, God. I don't like the way that you have provided these circumstances, these foods, these things. I don't like the gifts you've given me. And friends, 
I hate to break it to you, the person next to you is doing the same thing. It's easy to describe them, but in some fashion, so are you. It's one of the byproducts of being in a very affluent country. Having great wealth and having great uh, ease of life is that it's so easy for us to become petulant and bothered and childish and angry over the things that we don't have or the unhappy things that we do have. Instead of contemplating the good gifts that God gives, You see, that's the amazing thing. This is the thing he's been teaching them for month after month after month after month after month is that because he is the powerful God that he is, he's able to use even terrible things to do great good to the people of God. He's able to use the most awful of things to accomplish perfect purposes. And this is where it's so easy for us to have the hard things happen to us. And rather than contemplating God's mercy even in the midst of it, to get grumpy, to have a little temper tantrum, to be angry that it's not fair that God's doing something that I just don't like. You see, the the interesting thing is there's kind of a, a relationship here. The people of God are complaining about God's provision. They're complaining about how God has taken care of them. And you get to see that complaining is, it's infectious. It's a cancer. It's a plague. You know, talk about, you know, we've had a, global conversation the last handful of years about things being communicable and transmissive and and spreading germs, and this is the real germ, complaining. They begin to complain. The rabble initiates it. It spreads throughout Israel all the way even up through their leaders so that Moses has what is really, there's no other way to say it, a spectacular tantrum. I mean, it is a spectacular tantrum. While the, the people are busy complaining about God's provision, he then rounds on them and begins to complain about them. Lord, if these are the people that you gave me, just kill me now. That is usually not a good threat to make to God. Just gonna go out on a limb and say, don't do that. The Lord's mercy, he is so gracious. His strongest discipline is also his most generous. He might just take you home. Might just happen. But he, he throws this, he kind of melts down, verses uh, 11 and following. Why are you doing this, God? Why are you treating me this way? Did I give birth to these people? Am I the one responsible for taking care of them? If it's going to be like this, I'd rather just die. Because the c- complaining has contaminated the people of God, it's spread through, it's infected each other, and now we have not just a people that are complaining, the rabble-rousers, now a nation complaining, but not just a nation, even Moses himself 
We didn't read chapter 12, but it even spreads to his siblings, to Aaron and to Miriam. The whole nation has become a nation of complainers. The me monster even has Moses. God, if you're going to do this, I'm out. I'm just not interested in you taking care of me this way. If this is how you treat your children, I'd hate to see how you treat your enemies. I'm out. I'm not interested. I don't want to be a part of it. And he begins to complain against the people of God. And friends, again, the natural temptation of our hearts is if we can't complain about our circumstances, we really like to complain about our people done this pastoring thing long enough to watch that mechanism work in a person's heart is if you can't find circumstances to complain about, you'll find people to complain about. Find someone that just sticks in your craw that you just can't handle and woo, it feels so good to be grumpy about them. Why is complaining so bad? I mean, it really, it, it doesn't seem like it would be that big of a deal. Why is it so bad? Some of us would just say, well, I'm just venting. I just got to get it out. Once I get it out, it's fine. And we have our other little loopholes, right? I was just sharing so you could pray for them. Sure you were. Why is it so bad? for God's people to complain? Well, because really what it's showing is the contrast between who God has said He is and who we say He is. You see, in the middle parts of the book here, I mean this uh, chapter, we get to see the Lord actually explaining to them indirectly who He is. They've been complaining as a nation that he's not taking care of them, that their life has been filled with misadventure, which is ridiculous. It's the most fantastic life ever. The things they got to see, they're complaining about. And they're complaining about the food. They don't have the food that they miss, never mind the tyranny that came with it. They're complaining about just the life that they have, how bad it is that it's not as good as everybody else's life, that it's not as good as the pagans back in Egypt, their life, that it's, it's not as good as everyone else's life. But you, you see, the, the reality is God has been telling them that he's in charge of all of creation. And so what they're actually saying is, God, you're not doing a good job taking care of me. You know this whole sovereignty thing, this whole you ruling and reigning over all of creation? I think you stink at it. That is a dangerous thing to say, friends. Yeah, that manna, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of you giving that to me. I want you to give me something else. You know those people? I'm tired of them too. I want you to give me someone else. You know those miracles? I'm tired of those too. I want you to give me something else. You get to see the Lord's heart in verses 16 and following. This is absolutely amazing, right? So the people of God have just had their, you know, the outside of the camp scorched by the fire of God. 
Moses intercedes for him, it calms it down. They then throw an absolute tantrum over the food, which then sparks Moses to have his little, you know, spectacular meltdown. Verse 15, if you'll treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, then I might not see my wretched. Oh, pity party. So what does the Lord do in Moses? He says, okay, fine. You need help? I'll give you help, man. I love you. I'm taking care of you. You need help bearing the burden of these people? Great, I'll give you help. And he does the most shocking thing. He brings 70 of the elders in and he takes the spirit of God that has thus far resided in Moses and shares it with them and gives them an entirely new leadership structure so that the entire nation functions in a more efficient and more spectacular fashion. He gives them this massive gift. Moses throws a temper tantrum, absolutely pouts, and what does the Lord do? He doesn't just zap him. He's like, okay, great. Here, have elders. Let me give you a session. I love you. I've never not loved you. I've loved you before the foundation of the world. I love you now. I love you while you're complaining, and I love you after you're complaining. I am in for your good, Moses. And friends, I might just gently say that God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his love for you is the same. He loved you before you existed anywhere outside of his mind. He loved you when you existed in your mother's womb. He loved you when you were a baby. He loved you last month. He loves you now. He'll love you next week, and he'll love you even into glory. That thing that you want to complain about. He loved you before he gave it to you. He loved you when he gave it to you. He's loving you while he sustains you through it. And he will love you once it's taken from you. He is the God of love. His disposition towards his people has never changed. He loves us. He's caring for us. You see, what's happening when we're complaining is we're thumbing our nose at his love, at his affection, at his provision, at his care. We're saying, I don't believe you're very good at this, God. Instead of understanding that maybe, just maybe, he's actually wiser than you and that the gifts he's giving you are more complicated than you understand. But they're still good gifts. It strikes against his goodness, verses 16 through 20. Strikes against his wisdom. Verses 19 through 21, this is interesting. How wise is our God? What does he do when Israel complains to teach them how much they shouldn't complain? He gives them exactly what they wanted. Exactly what they wanted. They've been asking for it. We want meat? Fine, have it. You can have it every day for a month. Guess what? You're going to hate it. It'll be miserable. It gives them exactly what they want. This is one of those great lessons in life that sometimes the Lord's most severe discipline is literally just to give me what I want. For those of you that know your rock and roll history, right? That's the story of the song Layla, one of the great rock and roll anthems of all time. Man fell in love with his best friend's wife. 
mourned over the fact that he loved this woman. It was unrequited. She was married to his best friend. He waited until they divorced. He immediately swooped in, and they had this whirlwind romance. He then married her and found out he did not like her, and she did not like him. Divorce followed him. Misery upon misery. Complaining strikes against our understanding of God's goodness, verses 16 through 20, his wisdom, verses 19 through 20, his power, verses 23 through 25, his discipline, verses 31 through 33, the goodness of his gifts, verses 31 through 33. Again, all of this is at work, is that God is giving good gift after good gift after good gift after good gift, and when we complain, we are thumbing our nose at his good gifts. We're saying, I don't believe you when you know what you're doing. 2 Corinthians 1 tells us that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And yet in our complaining, we're saying, I don't believe that's true, that God actually loves me. All right, so what do I do if I am a complainer? One, well done, you actually listened to the sermon. Now, the good news is that the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not hold our iniquity against us forever. In fact, actually, he has already given it to Christ on the cross. That all of that bitterness of spirit that we have, all of that grumbling against the Lord, all of that doubting of his provision, friends, that is evil but it is an evil that is paid for on the cross. As a result, if you do find yourself either as a complainer or a person who complains regularly but maybe isn't a complainer, in a position where it would be good for us to repent. Now, I'll be honest, this is a thing that we oftentimes don't do very well. We sometimes approach it the way that we do our children. We tell our children, say you're sorry, and we say we're sorry, and we think that it's all better. And there's an element of truth to that, but really working to kind of promote a heart condition in us that grieves over the sin. To say that I'm sad when I complain, not just because I'm complaining, but because God loves me so much. Why would I think such negative thoughts about him? God has provided for me so well. Why would I think such negative thoughts about what he's given? God has cared for me in Christ Jesus. Why would I think he's done anything less? And to nurture that kind of sense of sadness that comes with it. I would say pastorally, As well, some of you, honestly, and this was kind of my biggest concern uh, thinking through how to preach this passage is that I know there are some of us in the room that we excel at complaining, but we have no idea that we do. And I've been kind of joking at it to get to this point in the sermon so that you would know I'm talking to you and about you. And again, not because I don't love you, but because I do. And not because God doesn't love you, but because he does. Because what you're doing with that is you're missing an opportunity to see God's care 
in even the hard things. You see, that's the difference, really, that I, re- I really want to challenge you with, is that when you have a, a heart of complaint, it is a heart that is filled with the me monster, and because it's filled with the me monster, it is preoccupied with not getting the things I want or getting the things I don't want. And as a result, you don't get to see God never left me. That even in the darkest place, he was there in the valley of the shadow of death. He was there when I was lost. He was there when it was sad and overwhelming. He was there. He never left. And you realize those two perspectives cannot coexist. The me monster eats the other one. And I'm going to go ahead and give you just a little hint. That, that second perspective is so much more fun. To be able to contemplate, you know what? My God is good and he has cared for me every step of the way. And to be able to think about some of those ways. To be able to consider how he has been kind to you. Honestly, some of you, and I'm, again, I'm not saying everyone, but some of us, we, we really need to spend maybe a little bit less time focused on our critical spirit and maybe a little bit more time thinking about how God has been faithful to us, even in the midst of it. Because you see, what's going to happen is whether you like it or not, difficult things will happen to you. You can't control that. God has cursed the world in which we live. He did a spectacular job. You cannot control that. You can't control the hard things. But you can fight the battle for your mind to understand that even in the midst of the hard things, he's never left you and he's never not loved you. And in fact, actually, once you can kind of get your eyes open to it, you'll be able to start seeing various things that he's done along the way to provide for you that you never would have been able to see otherwise. I mean, here, they're complaining about the manna because it doesn't taste like cucumbers and garlic and onions. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, he gave them pancakes. He didn't give them Brussels sprouts. What a mercy. He could have given them a lifetime supply of blue cheese, and that's all they had to eat would have been terrible. Everybody would have died of heart attacks in like three weeks. You see, what I'm pushing us for, hopefully, is that we would have together a greater commitment to just reflecting in God's, on God's goodness and resting in his love so that even when we face the difficulties that will be coming, we can do it together thinking about God's goodness And realistically, I do tend to make this point a bit often, but it's important. We're a growing church. God's been so kind to us, right? This church has exploded throughout COVID and how generous our God has been. But the more we grow, the more opportunity there is to complain. Or the more opportunity there is to see God's faithfulness. In some sense, your choice 
which one you think about, which one you focus on, knowing that by the time the Lord takes you home, (laughs) he's going to perfect you so you only see one of those two. Because our complaining will not go with us into glory. What a sweet mercy that is. God loves us so much that that doesn't come with us. What a sweet, sweet, merciful God we have. Never leaves us and never forsakes us. Might it be that we together would praise his name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we do confess our sin. While I have certainly talked around it and talked about it, the reality is many of us in here excel at complaining. You know my own heart. You know the various multitude ways I've done that. And Father in heaven, we ask because of Christ Jesus that you would forgive us for the times where we have complained against our spouse, where we have complained against our children, where we have complained against our bosses, where we have complained against our bodies, where we have complained against our health, where we have complained against your curse, where we have complained against your good gifts. Oh God, would you forgive us? And would you give us the eyes and the heart to delight in Christ and all of your promises being yes and amen in him? Thank you that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. For Christ's sake, amen.